0: This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, turning public issues into consumer products. Washington super lawyer, Bob Barnett, is master of the game. For four decades, since working with Geraldine Ferraro on her first book, to working with the most of the well-known public officials coming out of the Obama administration. Barnett is the broker of new careers, the author of second chapters. We'll talk with him in a moment. And in a very different milieu, Connecticut entrepreneur Jessica Mindich has figured out the perfect path to navigating the maze between being a mom and starting a business. Jewelry for a cause... It mixes the ethos of Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in with a practical reality of being a mom of two young boys but wanting to make a difference for society. Her caliber collection, which we'll talk about at the bottom of the hour, does just that. But first, if polyoptics is, as I've said, the mashup of politics and optics, the intersection of what people in public life do when the cameras are rolling and how those actions are churned through the media vortex, and then received and interpreted by viewers and listeners— "Then Bob Barnett is Washington's premier traffic cop at that intersection. A partner at Williams and Connolly he is much more than that. From a legal life born from federal court clerkships, to the u s Senate under Walter Mondale, to the side of legendary Edward Bennett Williams, Barnett has become, over more than forty years in practice, the man to see when moving from public to private life. He's also the man when you have a compelling story to tell, when you might be the new face of a television network, or when you might be in the debate of your life against a competing presidential candidate. And he's also the man to talk to today on Polyoptics. Bob, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Josh. I kind of like that. Traffic cop thing. I've been called the doorman to the revolving door, sometimes by some people the washroom attendant, but I like uh, I like traffic cop.
0: Well, I read those too, Bob, but I wanted to see if I could put it in a different metaphor.
1: I like them. I pre- I re- I respect law enforcement officers.
0: Is it possible to quantify going back to that first time you helped Geraldine Ferraro tell her story? How many people in public life or well-known media talent you've helped transition to the next stage of their careers?
1: Uh, Well, that'd be hard. Uh, Certainly hundreds. What you're referring to, though, is really two different practices, really. I help a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, do the transition. That can often involve books, which is what you're referring to with Ferraro. But it also involves law firms, consulting firms, boards of directors, speech deals, teaching, uh, CEO jobs, running trade associations. So that has many aspects to it. And a lot of these people who come out of public life have literally never been in the private sector. And what you do is you help them uh, with uh, the sorting of the opportunities that come their way and then making the proper deals.
0: What's that conversation like? How do people know how to call you? How do you know who to let through the door? And then how does the conversation go after that?
1: Well, they know how to call me by looking on the FBI Most Wanted list. They find me right up there. Uh, It's become uh, a mystery to me exactly how some of these people know to call me. Most often it's that they served with or are friends with or are a spouse of uh, someone who I've worked with. These things tend to spiral in the sense that one person has a need and they talk to someone else and they happen to know i try i try to help people uh and as you say come in the door who i think i can be of assistance to a lot of people come and they're looking to find jobs i'm not a headhunter i don't find jobs other people are looking to have help with an arrangement where i would make no economic sense because of my fees uh Other people come who are what I call purveyors of hate. I don't take those people on, uh, turn many of them down. So I try to make a judgment as to whether I make sense for the client and whether it's somebody that I would like to work with, whether I agree with them or not, and I make uh, the decisions that way.
0: So, Bob... You've been described in some ways as a career coach. Sometimes when people do finish their public service, they have multiple offers, but they're not sure which avenue to pursue, and they end up in your office at Williams & Connolly. You help redirect them in that traffic cop way and help them find a way that they might not have considered before they come in to see you. Any example over the years of people you've really helped steer in a different direction than they might have anticipated?
1: Well, as you can imagine, the only way I've survived for 40 years in this town is not by using specific examples. But I can tell you that uh, it's not so much changing what they want to do. It's more helping them get to where they want to get. A lot of people have the idea, for instance, that boards of directors are a good idea. And sometimes they are. But often for former public officials they involve high liability risk a whole lot of work because they'll often be on the audit committee or the compensation committee and relatively minor pay compared to other ways they could use their time however advisory boards can be a wonderful opportunity uh, very high compensation a uh, work but not a high volume of work and most importantly virtually no liability risk so again that's an example of how you can get to where the client wants to go but by pursuing a different path
0: moving to the book business now bob we have that rare moment in which pope benedict has retired presumably with some time on his hands now i don't expect benedict to go on any advisory boards And then there's this debate about whether your book deal for President Clinton was larger than John Paul's, if you adjust for inflation. But will the former Pope, in your view, become the next client of Bob Barnett if he has a story to tell?
1: Well, the Pope is on the ultimate advisory board. (laughs) So I wouldn't preclude that. If you think about it, it's a very unique and special advisory board that one should uh, admire. I think that he's said very publicly that he's not going to write publicly so he had formerly published uh, several books and pamphlets and, and articles but i think he's taken himself out of the uh, out of the publishing world so i don't think so
0: and he might do that bob because the economics of the publishing world have changed a bit what are the economics of the publishing world these days? The advance you helped negotiate for former First Lady Hillary Clinton might now be substantially different for a former Secretary of State Clinton. What's happening in New York, Bob, in the publishing houses and what they can pay for and what they really can't afford these days? Well, publishing
1: is a very challenged business. Uh, 700 border stars are gone. About 1,000 ball stores are gone. Uh, the ebook has significantly eroded the viability of paperbacks there are only 150 or so major independent bookstores left no one knows the ultimate fate of barnes and noble although i'm hopeful so publishing is a very challenged business i'm blessed to work with authors who are not terribly affected by the problems in the business. They certainly are impacted, but the real detriment inures to the first-time author, the mid-list offer, the small copy-selling novelist, those people are going to find it increasingly difficult to get published, to make a living in publishing, and that's too bad. It's too bad for all of us who are involved in publishing. That's a minor problem it's really too bad for the public at large and particularly for kids and the next generation of readers. So it's a very challenged business. But as I say, I'm I'm blessed to work in a sort of rarefied niche of the business with these major nonfiction writers and also several hugely successful novelists. And the impact on them is less, I believe, than certainly on the other categories I mentioned
0: books were a huge part of me getting attracted to public service, Jerry Ferraro's book being one, even David Stockman's book being another. Go back to that time to your youth in Waukegan and then moving up to the University of Wisconsin. I think Dick Cheney was a a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin a few years before you were an undergraduate. And David Moranis has also written about life in Madison in the 60s. But what was it like for you?
1: Yeah, well, actually, the Cheneys were there at exactly the same time, interestingly. When... uh When I was growing up in Waukegan, there was a bookmobile, and the bookmobile used to come to a shopping center about a block away from my home, and I was one of the bookmobile's biggest customers. I love books, love reading, same as I do now, and uh, it was always a big part of my life, largely because of my parents who encouraged it, my grandparents who encouraged it, and uh, I'm very thankful for that legacy that they left me. The, The... throughout grade school, throughout high school, throughout college and on, I've always been a big consumer of reading. And now, of course, I spend a lot of time reading my clients' books, but I also read widely with respect to other things. But I like to think my clients' books are the best anyway, so I'm reading the best.
0: Still staying in your formative years and mine too, another vehicle that told stories much more succinctly than a book was a simple commemorative stamp from the United States Postal Service. And I i know you were a big stamp collector growing up. Has the decline of the post office and the art of stamp collecting impacted the way kids sort of explore American history one little story at a time?
1: I Well, I stopped doing that probably when I was in high school, so it's a long time ago. I love collecting stamps because I learned a lot from it, uh, from the countries that I collected and stamps. Obviously, everyone is a little story, and to the extent you didn't just look at the color of the stamp, but actually explored the picture on the stamp or the meaning of the symbol that was used on the stamp, you learned an awful lot. And so I think that, uh, if anything, stamps have become more widely uh, disseminated because the U.S. Post Office seems to put out a new one every three minutes. That wasn't uh, the way when when I was growing up, they were much more rare. I don't know what's happened to collecting. You don't hear much about it, and as I say, I'm not involved, but I hope there's still a, a society of that among kids because I think they would learn a lot from it. I think as long as there's a post office, there's going to be stamps, so I don't think the problems that the post office faces will affect stamps, but I think probably the proliferation of, of digital and social media and Uh, computers has made probably to this generation and the last few probably uh, stamp collecting much less interesting,
0: unfortunately. For a guy who spent so much of his formative years in a place like Wisconsin and the northern part of the country, suddenly you come out of law school and get a clerkship with John Minor Wisdom in New Orleans. What's it like for a northern guy to suddenly show up in New Orleans in that judge's chambers in the midst of the civil rights struggle?
1: I had never been to New Orleans Uh, And I knew of Judge Wisdom because in the 60s and 70s, anyone who studied the law and particularly anyone who was interested in civil rights issues knew of his reputation as a giant. He was one of the four or five people in the Fifth Circuit who basically changed the entire nature of the South and to some degree the whole country. So one of the professors at the University of Chicago Law School recommended me to the judge, and I didn't know if I'd have a chance. I was really honored to be picked, and I went down there, and he had this fabulous house in the Garden District in New Orleans, actually, the house where my wife and I were married. And I come up there, and there's a person in a big hat and gloves and cutoffs, a woman sort of tending the garden. And I said to her, uh, excuse me, do you know where I can find Mrs. Wisdom? And she said, I am (laughs) Mrs. Wisdom. So that was my start, Josh.
0: So another thing that came from your early years was when you were a tri-state debate champion from Waukegan. Did the preparation that you put in for parliamentary procedure assist you when you then started your sort of side business, as it were, in helping Democratic candidates prepare for debates against their opponents?
1: Yeah, I was involved in debate in high school and really loved it. Uh, at that time, it was a big deal. It sort of receded now, I think, in the high schools. But it, was, uh, it wasn't it was football, believe me, but it was uh, a very popular activity that actually drew an audience. And the preparation uh, in terms of research, in terms of marshalling facts, in terms of organizing arguments was extremely valuable to me throughout my career in college and law school, working on the hills, clerking, certainly working in the law firm where a lot of what you do, whether it's negotiation or litigation, involves persuasion. So those, uh, those skills that I developed under the tutoring of some really good teachers in, in Waukegan uh, holds well for me to this day.
0: So it's 1984, and you're playing Vice President George H.W. Bush in debate prep against Geraldine Ferraro. Why is she getting frustrated with you? We
1: uh, Actually, this was my third rodeo. I helped in 76 and then helped in 80. And in 84, then candidate Walter Mondale asked me and the late Ann Wexler to run Jerry Ferraro's debate prep, and I was to play Bush 41 in the rehearsals. And she would uh, not enjoy some of the attacks and some of the criticisms that I, playing George Bush, would uh, deliver. And she would, unlike anyone else I've practiced, debated with, uh, walk over to my podium and slug me. And so I left those rehearsals black and blue on my left side, and uh, it was quite an experience. It wasn't intellectual combat only. It was physical combat with Jerry.
0: And then it's four years later, 1988. Do you ever reflect now that Governor Dukakis is in the debate against Vice President Bush and the White House is open and Dukakis really could have maintained his momentum and perhaps been elected and perhaps if only his debate performance had been better? What went in, according to your memory, into that debate prep that didn't allow him to succeed, whether it was to Bernard Shaw's question or to other highlights of that debate series?
1: Oh, I don't. I think there were a lot of reasons that we didn't prevail in that election. Debates were one, but there, there were a lot of other issues at the time and other actions that are well-remembered in electoral history that came to uh, to the detriment of the governor's candidacy. Uh, the prep process was excellent, and I think we had him well-prepared. Uh, Tom Donilon, who is now President Obama's national security advisor, who was on that debate team and with whom I've done many debate preps over the years, used to say you come to the uh arena and the candidate goes on the stage and we handlers go in the green room. So it's easy to second guess and it's easy to to say you should have done one thing or another, but uh it's a hard it's a hard thing to do. Presidential debates are the ultimate test at the intersection of politics, policy and media. And some pass it and some don't. And uh, sometimes they're not too relevant. Other times, as I would argue in 92 was the case, they're dispositive. Uh, But it's always an exciting adventure to be involved.
0: That brings up the guy I worked for, Bill Clinton, and the unique aspect of 92 that involved a third party, Ross Perot. What element of Clinton's natural performing capability versus the presence of Perot on stage affected that debate?
1: We had uh, dozens and dozens of rehearsals. The way we did it was we basically flew around with uh, then governor and presidential candidate Bill Clinton and set up in a hotel where we were and we practiced. The late Mike Sinar, a fabulous human being and a former congressman from oklahoma who died all too young played perot and i played bush and we had uh... spirited adventures i think that bill clinton has said and would say that those debates were if not the most critical element one of the most critical elements in his victory in nineteen ninety two because before those debates uh, people had impressions, some positive, some negative, but there would certainly been a lot of controversy during the primary process. And also uh, tens of millions of people, I think at that time it was a record, maybe it still stands, viewers tuned in to those three debates. And so it was the first time many people focused and the first time really they saw him other than in a 10-second soundbite. So those were very important uh Events and and I would argue critically important to the ultimate electoral victory. And I was proud to be involved in that process.
0: The opposite, Bob Barnett, of a 10-second soundbite might be a 12-hour filibuster. When you were working for Senator Walter Mondale in the Senate and after your clerkship with Associate Justice Byron White, One thing that Senator Mondale put you on to work on was filibuster reform, specifically, I think, trying to push back against the way that Alabama's Senator Allen was using the chamber for the purpose. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen Rand Paul bring the practice back into the public consciousness. And in ways, it was seen as sort of a refreshing thing. Do you look at this as a good thing or a bad thing at this point for our democracy?
1: Well, a discussion of filibuster rules and filibuster reforms could take up six hours. It is a complex subject. Uh, What we did back in uh, 75 when we did these reforms was change it from, uh, in effect, change it to 60 votes. There were rules that had it. Two thirds of the constitutional majority, two thirds president voting, it evolved over time, and a compromise was ultimately struck after a long and difficult process that uh, resulted in the current rule, which is sixty votes i I tend to take the long view of government and process having lived here forty years. Sometimes you 're in the majority, and sometimes you 're in the minority. uh sometimes a rule looks really good to you, and sometimes it looks very inhibiting to you and I think it's important to take the long view and see what's best for the institution, not just what 's best for now. There are nuances and uh, modifications, some of which were enacted at the beginning of this Congress, which make very good sense. I think that The idea that uh, you can just, by telling the leader you want to, stop the entire business of the Senate, that's a problem. Uh, But I think that the filibuster, so-called filibuster rule, Rule 22, is outdated or that everything should be subject to majority vote. Is something you really have to pause and think about and talk about. And as I say, it's a long discussion of Constitution, long discussion of Senate history and process, long discussion of how democracy works. And I hope that as people jump to make changes, some of which are necessary, they'll take the long view.
0: Another thing that needs the long view of discussion, Bob, and I'm sure you know, is the relationship between those who work in government and those who report on it. So for me, it's 1993, and I'm working in the White House for Bill Clinton, and we have him on the air with Larry King doing one of his hour-long shows. Then a terrible tragedy happens. Vince Foster commits suicide, and I'm sort of in the anteroom as the president is told about it. And he's also being covered by CBS News, for which your wife worked. And not to dwell on aspects of that incident per se, but was it a major news story at the Barnett Braver household uh, and how could you talk about it or not talk about it? I mean, you've said many times about how you maintain the Chinese wall between those two worlds, your world and hers. How did you actually do it through those years?
1: Well, I'm not sure at that point she was covering the White House. I think she came in a little bit later. But in any event, to go to your to go to your question, we when um, we started doing what we do in this town in my case, practicing law and occasionally dabbling in politics. In her case, being a correspondent for CBS News, we had the 1st arrived rule. If she was covering a story, I didn't get involved in it legally. If I was representing someone, she didn't cover it. Once she became the uh, CBS White House correspondent, and I was the personal attorney for the Clintons, it became obvious that that would create negative perceptions. And so, I, in one of the more difficult professional decisions of my life, stepped aside as personal counsel to the first family. Uh, It was a devastatingly difficult move. It was important to her and her career, so be it. But I did win Best Husband in my condominium.
0: And eventually those things come back around because I think in 2004, a young senator who's got one book under his belt for a small advance comes to you and says, I have another book. I could call it The Audacity of Hope or something like that. And eventually that helps Barack Obama get the sort of personal wealth that gives him and now First Lady Michelle Obama the sort of security they need to launch a further career in politics. Can you relay as much as you can about how that relationship started and how you were able to get Obama into a different level of book advance and royalty situation?
1: Well, I was obviously very honored when he came to me to help him with his publishing matters. We were able to do uh, a contract that included two adult books, one of which became an Essay of Hope and a children's book, which became of the I Sing, which has sold well over a half million copies all the money going to Fisher House, which is a very worthy cause. And uh, I first met him, I believe, at the 04 convention and got to know him a little bit in 06 and then started to represent him uh, at the time that you mentioned when we started doing the books and I uh, have been honored to, before he was president, before he was even a presidential candidate to get to know him and to help him. He is a brilliant writer. He writes those books himself and he has particularly with dreams, his autobiography, but also with audacity. He has an amazing skill as a writer and, Once the next four years uh, are completed, I hope he returns to doing some of that because I think there are a lot of readers who would enjoy reading what he has to write in the future, not just about the presidency, but about so many other things that he has seen and done and studied, and uh, he, he is an excellent writer.
0: So 4 years from now Bob might bring you up to the half century mark of the time that you and Rita have spent in Washington and well so much has changed and you can't begin to fathom it you could spend another hour on this you could you could talk about the culture you could talk about how the redskins have been at the bottom and had a bit of a resurg- resurgence in the Dan Snyder years you could talk about Steven Strasburg and the Nationals and and building that park in southeast and the way that, that that team has begun to really excite the city you could talk about the way you and mike berman go to every new restaurant in town try them out and whether the food has got appreciably better however you describe it how do you think washington has changed from that moment you arrived to work in the supreme court as a clerk to today when you are really master of the game
1: it's another hour as you say josh uh... It depends really on whether you mean the city or the government or the life. There's so many aspects to Washington. Tell me what you're addressing.
0: Well, we could take them in series. Uh, Basically, starting a career, you think about people like David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs and how they came to Washington four years ago with President Obama. They're now transitioning themselves into the media business. But there will be a new David Axelrod and a new Robert Gibbs, I have a sense, and I may be wrong, that in the 90s we had a very good time. We had our scandals, we had our issues, but it didn't seem to drain in the way that it does for people who are in government today, at least my perception, and in the media who who are covering it. I mean, they think it's just, in some ways, the White House and Congress is such a tough beat. So is it tough these days for the next Axelrod and Gibbs and the And will they have the same experience that you did in the 70s and I did in the 90s as we go into the 2010s and beyond?
1: Those two guys and David Plouffe are not good examples of the principle because they had very successful careers and businesses and government jobs before they came to Washington. I think maybe your question is more centered on a person who comes like some of the Carter people did, and some of the Obama people did, certainly some of the Clinton people did from Arkansas for the first time, who aren't established. I think that those people come into a land of opportunity and a land of challenge. Uh, 24-hour cable has fundamentally changed the way government works and personal relationships work. The need, if you are an office holder or somehow around the circle of an office holder, to raise almost unlimited money has changed the life, the going home, the family, the uh, ability to socialize. And uh, I would argue that social media has been, in some ways, a wonderful thing and, in many ways, a very destructive thing for people who come here and want to maintain a degree of privacy, and having a real life. So there's so many factors that exist now as we sit here in 2013 that didn't exist in the 70s when we came that uh, in some ways improve life, but I think in grander ways probably make life more difficult. Someone who comes to Washington and who runs the gauntlet and who does well and keeps their powder dry and doesn't get involved in problems can take this experience and use it to go home uh, where they came from and work in politics, work in private sector, whatever, can transition to the many opportunities that present themselves here in Washington to people who have governmental experience, policy knowledge, political skills. So there's a lot of opportunity, but it's a much tougher place to live and it's a much uh, more difficult place to survive.
0: Well, Bob Barnett, the best roadmap for navigating that intersection would probably be the autobiography of Bob Barnett. But it would probably spill too many beans for a lawyer of your discretion to share, so I don't think we'll ever read that. But I hope you continue to provide the stories of Washington and sports and culture and the other things that you're bringing to the fore and the authors that you're helping tell their stories, so please keep it up. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics.
1: Thank you, Josh.
0: History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. We learned this week that James Holmes, the suspect in the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting last July, has offered to plead guilty to the murder of 12 people in exchange for being spared the death penalty. That will end a chapter that will close a case. But for many, especially the parents and loved ones, it will not be justice, and it won't solve the epidemic of violence that continues unabated, even after Newtown. I was in New York last week when Vice President Biden stood with Mayor Bloomberg. For all those who say we shouldn't or couldn't ban high-capacity magazines, I just ask them one question. Think about Newtown. Think about Newtown. Think about how many of these children or teachers may be alive today had he had to reload three times as many times as he did. That event followed by an announcement that this ad would start to air in support of Mayor Bloomberg's plan. We dropped Jesse off in the morning, December 14th. Gave me a hug and a kiss. Said, I love you, Dad. I love Mom, too.
2: Our daughter, Grace, was seven years old. She couldn't wait to go to school. She would skip down the driveway.
0: My sister loved teaching at Sandy Hook. Every student would say, I hope I get Miss Soto next year. Lauren loved children, and she always wanted to be a teacher. I got a 911 call that there was a shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. We need to remember the 26 victims who lost their lives. She just wanted to teach little kids. And that was her goal, and she died doing it. Wonderful. That was the last I ever saw Jessie alive. I want to prevent any other family from having to go through what we're going through.
2: Don't let the memory of Newtown fade without doing
1: something real.
0: Demand action now. Then, in the East Room of the White House this week, President Obama weighed in. The notion that two months or three months after something as horrific as what happened in Newtown happens, and we've moved on to other things, That's not who we are. That's not who we are. I want to make sure every American is listening today. Less than 100 days ago that happened. And the entire country was shocked. And the entire country pledged we would do something about it and this time would be different. Shame on us if we've forgotten. I haven't forgotten those kids. Shame on us if we've forgotten. So with people like Obama, Biden, and Bloomberg taking center stage, a question someone might ask is, what can I do? How can I become involved? What can I do to make a difference? Well, here's the story of one average person, a mother of two from Connecticut, my old friend Jessica Mindich who's doing just that with Jewelry for a Cause. But before I bring Jessica on, let's have her introduced not by me, but by Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, explaining what Jewelry for a Cause is doing. We've taken the actual weapons we recover from crimes. What we used to just do is melt them down and give them away, but now we're using them as an instrument of more buybacks, an instrument of peace. And so here is actually a piece of jewelry uh, with a serial number on it from an actual gun that we recovered from a crime. That's the weapon serial number? That's the weapon serial number. It's amazing. It has Newark on the inside of the bracelet and uh, the caliber collection, they're called. And the, the proceeds, a large percentage of the proceeds, goes to more gun buybacks in Newark. And when we have gun buybacks, I know many people poo-poo them, but we have parents that will bring in the guns of their children. Uh, that We have a, a social activist that will convince guys to turn in their guns. Mm-hmm. And so we're, this is a convincing one strategy. Remember, this is not a cure-all, but everybody has the power to do something little, something small, uh, to make a difference. Well, no one could introduce Jessica Mindich better than the mayor of New York's uh, of Newark, New Jersey, Corey Booker. Jessica, welcome to Polyoptics.
2: Oh, thank you. What an introduction. Thanks for having me.
0: How did this—tell us about Jewelry for Cause and how you connected yourself with Mayor Booker.
2: Um, well— jewelry for cause is a company that I started in 2008 and everything that we do is to create um, innovative fundraising ways through jewelry for various not-for-profits. We work with schools, individuals, and large not-for-profits and we do... meet amazing people who are doing amazing things in a wide variety of charities. Um, Corey Booker and I met at a conference in December of 2011 and at a uh, one of our breakout sessions, we were um, sitting around a table talking with um, a group of people from a wide, wide variety of different backgrounds, one of whom was actually working on a project in the Congo taking ak forty sevens out of the Congo and um, working with a variety of um, high profile jewelry designers and um, And Mayor Booker was saying, um, "I have a lot of guns." and I said at, after a series of conversations over a few days that this is what Jewelry for a Cause does. And um, he was thrilled to have somebody there who wanted to help his city. And within two weeks after this conference, I was meeting with the police director, and I had no idea how I was going to do this. But, um, Josh, you know me well, and um, I was going to figure it out. So fast forward 11 months, we launched the Caliber Collection, the newest retail line by Jewelry for a Cause, November 28th. And... Mayor Booker was thrilled. We had spent a lot of time initially talking about what he envisioned for this jewelry line, which really surprised me. He was sure that he did not want to see any negative imagery in the in the jewelry. He wanted it to be positive. He wanted it to be a symbol of transformation. He didn't want to see anything that even reminded you of guns or bullets or angry imagery. And um, I was so thrilled when he when we first gave him a piece uh from the caliber collection he loved it so when he went on Rachel Maddow and gave it to her I thought it was the ultimate compliment so um we launched the caliber collection as I said November 28th and um it's been a whirlwind ever since uh,
0: what were what was the city of Newark doing with the guns that they were buying back before you stepped in
2: Well, interestingly, the the city of Newark has not been able to afford a buyback since 2009, so they weren't actually having buybacks. Um, Buyback programs are funded largely by private donations or by public um, service money. And if you are not using public money or you don't have private donations, you don't have Buybacks, so uh, they were not able to do them. So, what Mayor Booker did was really extraordinary and shows just how innovative he is and how much he believed in me, which is the ultimate compliment and put uh, it was really scary initially. He um, authorized the release of guns from evidence. So we worked with ballistics in the police department to have uh, guns cataloged that were no longer needed for evidentiary purposes. So they were from cold, from cold cases. They no longer needed these weapons. They were signed off by the prosecutor's office, office and we uh, had them signed off by a judge and released and destroyed, and the premier caliber collection was actually not made from buyback guns, but they were in fact made from guns that had been um, taken out of evidence.
0: And then the sales that you engineer go back into buybacks, which I which take two hundred dollars or so a piece. You have to find that booker has to find that money somewhere. It help. It comes partly from your sales. Is that right? Now
2: exactly. And I will. I'm so proud to tell you this. This date was just given to me that on April twenty seventh, uh, there will be a buyback, the first since two thousand and nine, sponsored exclusively by Jewelry for a Cause, um, in Newark and um, because we have already donated forty thousand dollars from sales from the caliber collection to the city of newark's police department I see so, this
0: I see this photograph of you with Mayor Booker. You have a twenty thousand dollar huge check printed out, but then you've hand crossed out the uh the the two and made it into a four so what happened in which you originally thought you were going to be able to give him twenty, but then you upped it to forty
2: he went on he went on uh richdow again. <laughs> and he and he gave her um he had first gone on rachel maddow and mentioned it and then he went on the show again and actually gave her a bracelet and they helped and instead of he had already announced that he was running for senate and instead of talking about his senate campaign he talked about bracelets and he held them up and uh... things went haywire. and from then on uh, i feel like there hasn't been a news media outlet that i haven't shared the excitement about the caliber collection and what we're trying to do with this extraordinary public-private partnership, um, and sales have been incredible. So uh, we very we didn't even have time to print a new check. I just so, had to get out my my sharpie.
0: So you've got a huge advocate, in Mayor Booker. But I understand from some of the reading that uh, not everyone in Newark was an immediate fan of the idea. The police director, being one of them, sort of self-confessional, saying. He just thought uh, it was, a, you know, it may be sort of another one of Mayor Booker's uh, uh, big plans, but, you know, he, Mayor Booker is his boss, but he went along with it. But now he seems to be a convert.
2: Well, he likes to, he likes to give me a hard time, and he. It's, it was one comment that he said, that he said, what jewelry? What's going on? I mean, you know, Police Director DeMeo is involved in some serious stuff, being the police director of the city of Newark. And when uh, you can imagine that if he's getting a phone call that some girl is coming in and wants to talk about jewelry, that it's one other thing added to his plate. But uh, as he, at what was not reported in that one interview, that he did say he's an incredible guy and he's an incredibly positive guy and shares the same innovative spirit that uh, Mayor Booker does that he also said right after that that you know shortly after we started speaking he saw that I was as enthusiastic and passionate about the cause that uh, he was eager to help make it happen and he really did he this could not have happened there's was no layers of bureaucracy in this city They, they Stuck to their word. They made phone calls. They, uh, you know, re- they just made it all happen, which was incredible to see.
0: How did you train yourself into the art of gun destruction, melting, and recasting?
2: <laughs> uh, I am good on Google. I, uh, you know, I did my research, and I have had. Um, there are so many people who just don't know how to help, and I, you know, I put it out there. I started asking around. I asked friends uh, if they knew anybody with smelting plants, and it just turned out I happened to have a friend whose uh, brother had a contact for me. And people just opened their hands and their hearts, and they uh, made phone calls for me, and really connected me, and and helped educate me and how to get this done. And um, it was a heck of a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. So um, I I'm very proud that we uh, just two weeks ago shredded over 500 pounds of steel, which was actually over a thousand guns um, that came from a five county buyback sponsored by the New, Ter- New Jersey Attorney General um, and. Uh, just means more caliber bracelets.
0: So, uh, do you basically have to roll up uh, the the Mindich family car to the to the police department and fill up your <laughs> trunk with guns? How does it get transported from police custody to the smelting plant?
2: Well, it's actually um, it's a good question because um, it's a they, they can't just hand me guns, and it's actually was of great concern to my younger son that one day UPS was going to arrive with guns to our house. Um, By law, the guns need to be in in police custody until they're shredded, so much so that every bit of steel could never be put back together. So the the police transport the guns to the shredding plant, um, and I meet them there, and the shredding plant puts these guns through a shredder that also shreds cars and railroad cars and uh, the Willis Avenue Bridge. I mean, this is an unbelievable machine. And um, once those things are shredded to a pulp, they're then turned over to me. Um, and it's, they have to be inspected and, and signed off by the, by the um, lieutenant from, and sergeant from the ballistics lab that they are, in fact, couldn't ne- they are Humpty Dumpty who has fallen and could never be put back together again.
0: So, next step in the process, the creative one, you've got this uh, huge, I guess, you know, box or crates of shredded iron uh, or steel and brass. Uh, then, how does the sort of turning it into art happen?
2: Well, it has to be melted into sheets and molded, and we have artisans that uh, that work and and on them and fine tune them, and they're hand hammered and oiled. And there's, I mean, it's a, it's a very involved process. And then we have a uh, one. Line of the caliber collection that actually has diamonds set into them because uh, the most precious of stones is set into something to symbolize how just how precious human life is, and that has to go to a different place because we have um, diamond setters in a different place. so it's an involved involved thing to do this and then we're, we're packaged in what what is a excuse me a replica of an evidence bag and on the evidence bag. It tells the story of the caliber collection, and it also explains the double entendre of the word caliber.
0: Which and, which Max uh, helped you come up with?
2: Exactly, it's it's a it's a family affair. Uh, it's uh it's you have the reference to the caliber of a gun, and you also have the reference to taking illegal guns off the streets of America's cities raises the caliber of that city. <laughs> so, I never wanted a pretty bow pretty tissue paper around a bracelet that symbolized so much. I wanted the story to be kept next to the bracelet, whether it was being given as a gift or you were buying it for yourself. I wanted this symbol of hope, transformation, and the future of America's cities to be um, really present at all times um, that the bracelet was presented, shown, sold, bought. And what's amazing is that I don't think there's a country that hasn't um, bought the Caliber bracelet. We even have had three customers from Liechtenstein buy the bracelet, which is amazing. Which I think may may make it like 20% of Liechtenstein owns Caliber bracelets. Uh, but we are we are blown away by the international support for uh, what has gone on in America, and um, we're very optimistic about the difference that we can make through the Caliber collection, and hope that. Uh, going forward, we have cities across America embracing this way, this fundraising tool, and uh, we can make a difference. It's not the only way to make a difference. It's not the answer. There's a lot of different ways that we have to come together in our communities and raise the caliber of our behavior and change what's going on.
0: And clearly the uh, actions or or tragedies in Blacksburg and Tucson, Aurora, Newtown, raises everyone's consciousness about what gun violence does. I think it's hard to now watch the news and uh, get through 30 minutes without another reference to uh, the taking of life somewhere in America at the hands of gun violence. How has uh, the consciousness raising around the country affected basically the business model of jewelry for a cause?
2: Well, um... I'd say it's the only po- it's the only positive thing is that uh, people are looking for a way to support um, to offer their support, a way to do something, and this has given them a way to show their support. And the- long ago, caliber bracelets stopped being jewelry; they're a symbol, and um, that's really incredible. And a um, it gives me chills that people want to wear this bracelet every day and look at it and know that it's, it is a real gun, a gun that will never go back on the street and never hurt someone's loved ones, never kill somebody and that by wearing it and buying it and they're helping to contribute to a real uh, virtuous circle and um, make a change. And I really, you know, I'm proud of that and proud of what we've been able to do with that.
0: The original business model for Jewelry for a Cause was sort of like uh, fundraising for organizations. They would take your products and sell them using their own networks. Now, people who watch Rachel Maddow and Cory Booker or listen to Polyoptics with Jessica Mindich, is there a way to buy retail directly uh, if they're interested?
2: Sure. We actually um, we're just delivering our wholesale orders. Uh, We've had uh, stores from all over the world buy um, place orders for the caliber collection, and we're just shipping out now. So um, we should probably put a list up of stores that are carrying the caliber collection beyond being able to purchase them at calibercollection.com, um, and we, we will do that for you. But they're not currently they're, – they're just shipping next week. We've had such incredible demand that just uh, satisfying our direct retail orders um, has, has been – a uh, a little bit of a journey but um they they will be carried in retail stores across the world.
0: I want to hear uh just a, a little bit from Cheryl Sandberg uh at her commencement address at Columbia University and then Jessica Menditz just talk a little bit about not jewelry for a cause per se but the transformation of a person who set who decides that it's time to really take a risk and lean in and make a difference uh, by starting your own business.
1: I entered the workforce believing that my generation was going to have equal responsibility and equal opportunity. And it didn't work out that way. Women are getting more college degrees, more graduate degrees, entering the workforce at every level. But in industry after
0: industry, women are at 18, 15, 20 percent of the top jobs.
1: Women are held back by many things. We're held back by bias, by lack of flexibility, by lack of opportunity. We also hold ourselves back. We don't sit at the table. We don't raise our hands. We don't let our voices be loud enough.
0: So, Jessica, you talked recently about five things that helped you get back into business that includes some failure, but but what are the keys to starting a business really from a standing start when it's time to have a really a new chapter in your professional life?
2: First of all, thank you for the uh, that intro, but... Um, I- I think that the key is to get in the game and uh, I was given that advice by somebody who believed in me and I think that I was so afraid to fail and um, this person said to me stop worrying about failing you're not even in the game so get in the game and stop worrying about failing it's such a female thing to say I'm gonna I'm gonna fail but I might fail just get in and the worst thing that can happen is that you fail. And, um, but at least you've tried, and that, and so just get that out of your mind and get in the game and give it give it all you've got, and then also, people around you want to support you and they believe in you, and you've given them so much with your friendship or um, camaraderie or supporting what they've been trying to do in their life, uh, ask them to support you or for their advice or. To intro, for an introduction um, and it's the low-hanging fruit that it, that's in your life that, you know, is right there for you so don't, you know don't think that you're going to go to the moon on your first try but just, um, you know, start at seeing what's around you and um, build, build a really strong foundation
0: Well Jessica Mendich, founder and CEO of Jewelry for a Cause uh, keeper of the new caliber collection of Uh, jewelry based on guns that were acquired through gun buyback programs. I know from our other conversations that uh, you've got some very exciting things right on the horizon and uh, best of luck and we'll keep watching. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you
2: and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor.
0: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.